So this morning, as we continue our exposition through the Gospel of John, I would ask you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 10, the 10th chapter of John, as we bring this chapter to a close and we uh, transition. Uh, and next week, we'll be transitioning into uh, what really is essentially the final week of Jesus' life here on earth. So this morning I'll be reading John chapter 10, verses 31 down through verse 32. And God's Word reads, The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning Me? And the Jews answered Him, For a good work we do not stone you but for blaspheming, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. And therefore they were were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign... Yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of this word. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you illuminate this text for us as we um, spend a few minutes studying through it. Father, help us to understand what it means, uh, but not just what it means, but also know how to apply it into our everyday life. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Full circle. Full circle. I've titled this this morning, Full Circle. And um, today's text uh, brings, as I said, brings to an end or brings to an end the general ministry of Jesus to the larger context. His arena will now be smaller and intentionally focused on his core group. These three months will pass. Three months will pass between John chapter 10, verse 42, and John chapter 11, verse 1. And so this morning, I want to begin at the end of our text and focus on verses 40 through 42 first. I mean, Jesus has now come full circle. Having started His earthly ministry beyond the Jordan, He now prepares for the end of His earthly ministry beyond the Jordan. In John chapter 1, verse 28, it says that these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, these things also include the baptism of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, it gives us a, a fuller context of these things. It says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin of the world. This is He on whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. For He existed before me. I did not recognize Him, but so that He might be manifested to Israel. 
I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And He remained upon Him. I did not recognize Him. But He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, upon Him, this is the one who baptizes with or in the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus returns to the place where it all started, beyond the Jordan. Of course, He is not alone. His disciples are with Him. And Jesus is preparing for them, for their ministry, for the ministry ahead without Him. Even as He is beyond the Jordan, many who have been there to hear or been there to see John the Baptist now testify to the things they heard John the Baptist say and testify to the things that they've seen Jesus do. Verse 43 tells us the result of the combination of these two things. Many believed in Jesus there. I mean, this is the purpose, is it not? This is why John wrote this gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Eternal life is only through Jesus. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As Jesus now prepares for the end, of his earthly ministry beyond the Jordan, what must be going through his mind? He knows the cross lies before him, but also of his concern he has for his sheep, for his disciples. In fact, in John 17, in the high priestly prayers, he prays to the Father. Jesus says, I have accomplished the things that you, God, have given me to do. Verse 12, I guarded them, and not one perished. And as light came into the world, the light for a time would leave the world. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, as Jesus hangs upon the cross, darkness fell upon the land. And when Jesus died, the veil separating the people from God tore. Tombs were opened. The earth shook. Those keeping guard over Jesus saw these things happening and said, truly, this was the Son of God. But the good news of the Gospel is, Jesus is still the Son of God. Do you believe? Do you believe this? Let us now turn to verse 31. I want to focus here the rest of our time on verse 31 through verse 39. And in these nine verses, I want to highlight the deception of the human heart, the importance of Scripture, and the value of works. Of works. And we'll start with the deception of the human heart. The deception of the human heart. Many would have you believe, and, and many often will tell us that you need to follow your heart. Follow wherever your heart leads. Stay true to your heart. But if your heart is not in tune with God, your heart will deceive you. Your heart will lead you astray. In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, it says, Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these things are in opposition with each other. The flesh and the spirit cannot coexist in such a way. The flesh cannot be in charge on one hand and then the spirit on the other hand. The two do not exist together. One will take the lead. One will set the pace for what is to come. In verse 31 says this is exactly what we see here in our text. The Jews picked up stones. There were these religious people here. They picked up stones again to stone Jesus. And Jesus is in essence saying, hang on, fellas. Sit tight for just a minute. Put them stones down. Why are you stoning me? For what reason are you going to stone me? I mean, Jesus says, look at the good things that I have done. And many look even at Jesus today and see a good man that he was and see the things that, that he done. But being good doesn't always, isn't always the safest for your life, is it? If we step back into history a few thousand years, we can see an example of Cain and Abel of this very example. Being good sometimes can bring about our demise. In John, writing in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, he recalls and he brings Cain and Abel to our mind when he says this. He says, Cain was of the evil one, and he slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Jump down a few verses in 1 John chapter 3 to verse 18, and John says that we must not love with words alone, but with deeds and with truth. With deeds and with truth. Sometimes we want to emphasize one over the other. Sometimes we want to emphasize words. Sometimes we want to emphasize deeds. But John is quite clear the two go together. And words and actions matter. What we do and what we say does, if what we say does not match with what we do, we are called what? We are called hypocrites, aren't we? And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here this morning. But isn't this often also the charge that those outside the church want to want to give to those within the church? How many times have you heard those outside the church say, I don't go to church? I understand it's just an excuse, but I, how many times have you heard that? That I don't go to church because the church is just full of hypocrites. I don't go to church because I hear, I hear them say one thing and I hear, and I see them doing another, right? That's exactly what we, we often hear. That's why our words and our actions must go together. And that's what they're accusing Jesus of here today. They're not necessarily accusing him of his actions so much as they're accusing him of his, of his words. Look at verse 33. 33 says that they answered him, you know, for good works we do not stone you, but for blaspheming we stone you. That's what they were attempting to stone him because he, they said that he was blaspheming. Now blaspheming, I mean, that's a serious charge. That's not one that you just take, take lightly. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, it, it, they were given the, in the law of Moses, they, they, were, they were given this command. This commands everyone who blasphemes the name of God shall be put to death. And if you were going to read that, that whole little section in its context, it wouldn't say just the people of Israel, but even, even those outside who come into your community, even if they blaspheme the name of God, they shall be put to death. Jesus Himself takes this very serious when He says that the unforgivable sin is blaspheming. 
He says the unforgivable sin is blaspheming. And, and we hear this often. There's a concern often on people that you may hear. You yourself may have engaged in such a conversation with somebody. He says, what is the sin of blaspheming? Well, I think the, the sin of blaspheming is, is nothing more or nothing less than denying Jesus as the Christ. Is there any other forgiveness of sins that we can have other than through Jesus? And if we deny Jesus, there is no other forgiveness for sins. That would be the sin of blaspheming. As I already said, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you say, no, I want to climb the mountain another way. No, in essence, that's exactly what is being spoken of here. That is blaspheming. So they accused Jesus of two things. One, because of things that he did on the Sabbath that he was not supposed to do on the Sabbath, and because he himself makes him out, himself out to be God. So their, their result is a therefore, therefore he must be killed. He must be killed. I mean, the irony is that Jesus is not making himself out to be God. He is the eternal Word of God in John chapter 1.1. The world became flesh, or the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. He is the Word become flesh. He is the exact representation of His nature, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And the, the, the nature here, He is the exact nature. He is the exact representation of His nature, speaking of God's nature. Nature is just the essence the actual being of something. And so Jesus is the exact representation of his actual being, of God's actual being. So Jesus is not saying, no, I am God per se. And yet he is saying he is God, is he not? This is the dilemma that is difficult to get our minds wrapped around when you think of the the Trinity and the incarnation wrapped into one. And so... um, the human heart, the human heart outside of a relationship with Christ is deceptive, will lead us astray. And the second point that I want to draw out in these few verses here is that uh, the importance, the importance of Scripture, the importance of Scripture, because Jesus responds here with, hang on, fellas, put those stones down. Has it not been written in your law. Now, law here, what is being, what is being said, often we'll hear, sometimes we'll hear law and the prophets, or we'll hear the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, and, and so here Jesus is just saying the law, in essence saying like we might say the Bible instead of saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You no, know, we, we say the Bible. That's what Jesus is doing here. So he's saying, Jesus is saying, hey, hey, isn't in your law, isn't in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, doesn't it say that you are God's Now, what is Jesus citing? Jesus is citing Psalm 82, verse 6, which says, I said you are gods, and all of you are sons of God. The interesting thing about Psalms 82 is that Psalm 82 is a psalm of judgment. It's it's not a psalm of of praise. It's It's a psalm of judgment. And what it's about is that the leaders, those who God has set aside to be in leadership, are often thought of as God's little G's, as a way of, of calling them as leaders, as we may call ourselves today. But, but here they were sometimes called as God's. And though God has set them apart in Psalm 82, God is saying, even though you have been set apart, 
you're still going to be accountable. You're still going to be held accountable for your actions. This is the point that Jesus is making. So Jesus makes this point by, by pointing to the Scriptures, pointing to Psalm 82, quoting Psalm 82, verse 6, and then He adds a footnote. Your Bible may have it in parentheses. Jesus adds a footnote and says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. And the Scripture cannot be broken in verse 35. Now we must notice the high importance that Jesus places on Scripture. I I was surprised as I went through my little Bible software search program to how many times Jesus has quoted the Old Testament. And there was a lot. I, I got to about 50 and quit counting. For some reason, it wouldn't give me a, just the number. But 50 some times, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Now, it certainly wasn't old to them. It was their Bible of the day. It was the Torah. It was their, the Hebrew Bible. But 50 times, Jesus quotes their Bible, the Bible. And the Greek word that is translated into English here as broken is a very commonly used word, often in combination with others, but nonetheless, we won't get into all that. But sometimes it's also translated as loose or or untie, broken as we have it here. And so uh, to help help us get our minds around this maybe just a little bit, I want to give you just a couple cross-references that is also using this word. Because we need to understand the importance that Jesus puts on Scripture. That's what, that's my point here. And so I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, right? That was that temple, that was that, that curtain that separated the, the, the normal people from the, from the priests, right? And at the death of Jesus, that temple tore, that veil tore, and that was Jesus separate. That, that veil is now gone. It's broken down. That dividing wall is broken down. Acts chapter 27, verse 41, where, where Paul was on one of his ship journeys, um, or journeys by sea on a ship, and a storm came up. And this is what it says. Striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up. There's our word, broken up by the force of the waves. The stern is no more. And one more for you this morning in John chapter 1, verse 27. It is He, John the Baptist speaking of Jesus, says, it is He who comes after me, whose thong of His sandal I am not worthy to untie. And there's our word. I am not worthy to untie the laces of His shoes. See, unlike the wall, Scripture cannot come down. Unlike the boat, Scripture cannot be torn apart. And unlike the sandal, Scripture cannot be untied. Many, many want to claim a faith in Christ without affirming the inerrancy of the Bible. This is not possible. The two cannot coexist. You cannot hold a faith in Christ without holding the inerrancy and inspiration of the biblical text. No martyr, past or present, held this view. Let me get this straight. Um, so, So the Bible says that you kill me I go to heaven, 
And yet, I'm not sure about this creation stuff. I'm not sure about the virgin birth. I'm not totally sure about this idea that um, Jesus literally died and rose again. I'm not sure about all that, but, but I affirm that Jesus is my Savior, so go ahead and burn me at the stake. Right? For some reason, I have a hard time imagining any martyr went through that thought process. I can't imagine that a martyr says, well, I claim this part of the biblical text as, as authoritative for my life, but this part here, it's all made up. Really? So how do you discern what's made up and what isn't? I can't imagine a martyr facing a stake. I can't imagine a martyr facing to be drowned. I can't imagine a martyr facing the gallows of the hangman's gallows. I can't imagine facing a firing squad. I can't imagine just recently as we've seen in our news of having your throat slit on camera or deny Christ if they believed, if they did not believe and hold to an inerrant Bible. Can you? Can you? I'm giving you this morning, I'm offering you this morning, the two do not coexist. You cannot have a sincere faith with Christ and hold to a Bible that is heirs, that has heirs within it. And so I want to remind you of what the Scripture says of itself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of man's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, wrote from God. But to our text here in verse 35, Jesus says, to whom the Word came. See, in verse 35 it says, if He called them gods, to whom the word of God came. And then we have our footnote. What Jesus is saying, He's, he's calling those who, who recorded the word that had been given up to that point. And by quoting Scripture, He's also affirming the inerrancy of the same Scripture. I mean, Jesus is, is clearly speaking of the inspiration of Scripture here. And these two together he is affirming the inerrancy and the inspiration of our biblical text. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, we can just see what Jesus thinks of this. When he says, not the smallest letter or the stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, Jesus took Scripture as inspired and inerrant. And so must we. And so must we. For the life of me, I can cannot understand why someone can... The problem with Scripture is it gets in our way, doesn't it? It gets into the way that I want to live my life, right? It messes with my, my plans. It messes with, with how I want to conduct my life. In essence, it, it messes with me being that little God. I mean, all we have to do, all we have to do is look at the two largest issues, devices, issues of the church, and realize 
a problem with taking a literal interpretation of Scripture seriously, how it messes with us. We can look at abortion and how there's those so-called Christians who believe there's nothing wrong with abortion. How, how, I, I, don't, I can't get my mind wrapped around such a thing. How, how is that possible unless we don't hold to an inerrant Scripture? How, how is it possible to think same-gender marriage is okay unless we don't hold to an inerrant Scripture? I mean, gender confusion is rampant among us, and I understand there might be some of that, but that doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it okay unless unless we don't hold to an inerrant Scripture. See, the importance of Scripture is the antidote to a deceptive heart. To a deceptive heart. But now I want to move on to our final point. And that is the value Jesus places on works. On works. Verse 37, Jesus says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. It's like, look, look, I get it. If I'm not doing the things that line up with my Father, then don't believe me. Then don't believe what I have to say. Jesus does not ask them to have blind faith. And you know what? No one should ask us, and no one is asking us to have blind faith. There are times where someone says, well, you just need to have blind faith. No, no, you don't need to have blind faith. Faith, yes. Faith which is God-given, but not blind faith. Luke, writing to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and following, he, he says that, that we have eyewitnesses. And I have investigated everything carefully so that you may have confidence. Not just a maybe, not just that, well, this should help you. No, so that you can have confidence in what you have been taught, in what you have been taught. John says that he recorded this gospel for us as an eyewitness so that we may believe. And Jesus preparing his disciples for the life that is to come, a life without his physical presence. In the 15th chapter, 27th verse, he says that you will testify. Why will you testify? Because you have been with me from the beginning. And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. John says, Luke says, Peter says, Jesus says, this is not blind faith, but it is a faith built upon the inspired and in the inerrant Word of God. Over and over and over again, the authors of our biblical text say that I was there. I have eyewitnesses. They point to eyewitnesses. Are we going to call them liars or are we going to accept their word? In verse 38, Jesus says, But if I do the works of my Father... And you do not, though you do not believe me. So, okay, you're seeing what I'm doing, and I know you don't believe me, but because of what I do, believe my works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I, and I in, in, in the Father. 
And so Jesus says, this is why Jesus does these works. See, the both the know and the understand here, verse 38, let's, let's come down here a bit. Let me, let me, um, at the end of verse 38, Jesus says, believe the works. So you, you may not believe my words, but believe the works that I do, so that, this is why, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in you. And so the words here, that the, so that you may know and that you may understand, it, it's gnosko. So it, it's, the same, it's the same word in Greek, but it means two different things in English. And yet, so what, 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 basically what Jesus is saying, not only that you know, but that you can keep knowing. That you can keep knowing. So it's not only that you something that you know, but, but you can continue knowing. That you can continue in your faith is what Jesus is telling them here. It's literally to, to know and to continue to know. Now, interesting thing is, uh, John the Baptist, you know, uh, from the beginning, the first time Jesus was on that side of the Jordan River, so, so bring your mind and go back there again now. He told his followers, he said, he says, fellas, <clears throat> I'm stuck here in prison, and I got a good idea this isn't going to end well for me. Um, so, so why don't you go and ask Jesus and ask him this? So in Matthew chapter 11, we have these words recorded for us. It says, go and ask Jesus this question. Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? I, I mean, that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, right? So, so, right? We already seen in the opening verses or the opening, uh, by opening introduction when we read those verses of 1 John. That, that, that God said, okay, the one that the dove comes down from heaven and lands on this person, it's on him who's the expected one. He's the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so John, seeing that, he testified to that. And so now as he's, he's sitting in prison, he's like, you know, I, I better verify this, <laughs> right? So he says, go and ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for someone, someone else? And Jesus responds to John and says this. And I've often wondered, it's like, Jesus, couldn't you give, give the man a straight answer? I mean, couldn't you just tell him yes or no? But who am I to question Jesus? And I had a new way of understanding that. And this is it. So Jesus said, go, go and report to John. What you hear and see, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is quoting Scripture as evidence for He is the Christ. He's quoting from Isaiah. And Jesus doesn't just say yes or no. But Jesus is in essence saying, look at what I've done. Look at my actions. Look what the prophets had said would happen. What the person who, who, is, who is to come is going, is going to do. Look at what I'm doing. Look at the evidence. Look at what has been written about me. John the Baptist sitting in prison. Did you doubt these words? Or did he not? He didn't, of course. So I think by not answering yes, it's a better answer, wasn't it? She said, look, these are the works that the expected one will do. So John accepted the evidence of works. The Jews of our text, the people of our text, they did not. They didn't accept it. Look at verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Why? Why? 
Verse 26, they're not his sheep. Right? I mean, I mean, these people were not his sheep. That's, that's why. He says, my sheep, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. None of them are going, going to perish. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. What more evidence did they need here this morning for them to believe Jesus is the Christ? And so I wonder, well, what about you? Do you recognize the voice of the shepherd? Has he called your name? Or like those in our text here today, are you in denial with that proverbial stone in your hand? The scriptures are clear. But they're not always easy to follow. They're not always easy to adhere to. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you can have life in His name. You know, we always look at that as a very positive sense, which I always want to do. And I think we should always do that. But there's another side to that, is there not? Unbelief is non-eternal life. Not believing, unbelief, leads to eternal, not life, but eternal destruction, hell, right? I mean, those are the two options that are before us this morning. If you don't believe, what would it take? What more evidence do you need to believe? And if you do believe, then rest assured knowing that you are eternally secure in the arms of the Good Shepherd. Lord, I thank you for your words. I thank you for your text. Lord, I pray that your spirit moves among us. Lord, I pray that only those things that are from you, only those things that are accurate and true would stay upon our hearts and on our minds. And Lord, I do pray for each person here this morning. Lord, we can say all kinds of things. We can do all kinds of things that the heart can be deceptive. I pray, Lord, that you would search each heart out here this morning, just as you have mine this past week. And I pray, Lord, that, um, that you would convict where convicting needs to happen, that you would soothe, that you would assure where assurance needs to happen. Lord, you are the good, good shepherd, and we thank you for it. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.